Hey, everybody, we are back. Welcome to a bonus episode of More Than a Title. I'm your host, Jared Thomas, as usual, and we've got a special, special episode lined up for you guys today. So I've got actually, for the first time, I have a special co-host. He's my best friend, business partner, Tyrone Williams. On the What's going on, Tyrone? What's up, What's everybody? <laughs> thanks, for having, thanks for coming on, bro. Like, I, I, It means a lot. First episode with you, man. It, it's, it's a special one. My pleasure, and, brother. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And we also have a special guest. So I got to give you the good intro. I got to give you the great lined up intro, guys. So you guys read the description, right? Today, we're going to talk about the market. But this gentleman here has over 25 years in the space. Um, he has, you know, he's done everything from treasury management, risk management, portfolio management, you name it. And I actually came across this gentleman through my endeavors in the market, right? So everybody I would listen to, everybody I would watch, everybody I would learn and, and disseminate information from always mentioned Peter. And then just out of nowhere, my best friend actually, um, you know, sent me Peter's um, information. It was like, man, we should, you, you should, you got to get him on the show. How could you not have Peter on your show? And <laughs> this is this is where we are today. So this is a special episode. Want to introduce our special guest, Peter Hahn. How are you, man? I'm doing great. And uh, yeah, thanks again for the invite. Uh, this is my first podcast, uh, so uh, you know, appreciate the interest. And let's uh, let's go and see what we we can bring up. I love it. I love it, man. So this is this is all about you. We're going to talk about your journey. You know, for all those first time listeners, more than a title, as you know, is a show that's geared to really about the lessons about someone's professional journey, right? What they've done, whether it's your CEO, whether you're account executive, whether you have the bootstrap and sleep in your car for six months to get the business going. I feel like those are the lessons that are most valuable versus the tips and tactics. And this is what we wanted to present to you guys. But for today, we're going to talk about, you know, obviously uh, Peter's professional journey, but also the market, right? The market is going haywire right now. It's a lot of things that we should know, and there's a lot of areas for you guys to win and, and make some money. So anything to help you win, that's what we're here for. So if you want to, Peter, let, let's start at the top, man. Let's let's talk about your, your professional background and, and kind of what led you in to your, your industry and your career. Sure. Okay. So just to summarize before we get into it. Uh, so yeah, I have... Uh worked in the financial market since 1995, right out of grad school. Uh, I started at the Bank of Canada. Uh, I did variety roles there, but uh, I, I was on the foreign exchange desk back when the central bank still intervened in the market. And then I joined their reserves management desk, which was uh, basically managing their foreign reserves. So some really good experiences there. Um, the idea with working at central bank is they don't pay very well. They, they pay better now than they do, but they didn't pay very well. And so you basically spend a few years there and you'd use it as a working experience, like a, a elite finishing school, as it were. Yeah. Uh, and then you go out in the private industry. So I pretty much did that. Um, after I was at the Bank of Canada, I, I, well, I joined TD in Toronto on their FX desk for about two years. Uh, transition back to the, I basically went to the Bank of Canada, TD, back to the Bank of Canada. And then from there, uh, I was, you know, realizing again, it's like I've been at the bank for eight years now. Even I got more experience, it's more valuable. It's a civil service salary can only go so far. You want to do something with your life or you want to have a safe job. And my view was that I, I learned a lot in the, in the central bank role, but there was a lot of opportunity out there. Um, yeah. For family reasons, I wound up taking a job in Alberta. Uh, I grew up in Alberta. Um, my family was all in Western Canada, and I had been out east for you know ten years odd. So, I wound up taking a job with ATB Financial, which is a leading. It's a crown corporation owned by the Alberta government, but it provides the same banking services as all the Canadian banks. Yeah. And from, from there, I basically ran their FX desk, which was kind of an interesting time. And and since then, I've been basically uh, bouncing around a few roles. Uh, I wound up working in Scotia on their deposit uh, 
specialist role, basically advising companies on what to do with their money. Uh, and then since then, I went to uh, a sort of portfolio management role, which I've been currently in for a few years. Uh, yeah, in terms of the education to get there, then that was the interesting thing. What got me into markets in the first place? We have to go mm -hmm. way back to 1987. I was still in high school. Mm -hmm. uh, my dad worked for the Canadian government as a diplomat, so we were posted in Sydney, wow. Australia. So I was, wow. I was living in Australia at the time, and the big topic there was the Australian dollar used to be fixed, and they decided while I was in high school to float it. So it basically would trade with the market. Uh, at the same time, the movie Wall Street came out. Um, Michael Douglas, of course. Yeah. And I thought, holy crap, this is exciting. So I didn't care about stocks at the time, but I did like foreign exchange because, again, I've been covering it in high school all the time. So I thought, I want to be a foreign exchange trader when I go to school and get out of school. So how do I do that? Well, you know, you know, in the old days, you really just needed a high school diploma. You could walk into a bank and say, hey, I was a, the head quarterback for this team. I, I am really aggressive. And, oh, we like that idea. We want you to be really aggressive. So <laughs> as a creator, you got to be like, take no prisoners. And so that was the idea. But then then things sort of got elevated. Computers came in. It's like, well, we need someone with a little more education for these roles. And so they, they said, OK, we need someone with a business degree. And then it was like, okay, well, now we need everyone's got business degree. We want to winnow out the applicants, so we want someone with an MBA. So you wind up getting this this what they call a um, uh, funneling effect, where you got to have more and more credentials to get to a job that didn't need them before. But in in fact, the market did get more complex. Uh, computer trading programs came in. You did have to have some idea. Clients wanted some kind of like wanted to see that you had some kind of education. So Absolutely. I wound up being lucky enough that I had really good grades in high school. I was able to get into Queen's Commerce, which was considered one of the best business schools in Canada. A little overrated because when I graduated in 1992, it is like, I'm way back now, you guys. This is like, yeah, I'm old. There was a recession caused by, you know, the, uh, if you remember, well, you won't remember, but the, there was an election between George Bush and Bill Clinton. And the whole thing was the thing Bill Clinton was saying, it's the economy, stupid. And it was because during the early 90s, we had uh, a real recession not as bad as 2008 but it was a bad recession mm -hmm. and so you had really a, no choice as to your ideal career like the uh in my business school even though it was the elite business school not not a lot of good job offers so i wound up going working in whistler of all places as a uh, as a as a waiter and in, in chateau whistler which is the big ski resort hotel uh and then i realized i really don't want to do this for the rest of my life so I got to go do something about that. And I went to grad school. I went to UBC, which is, again, a big school in Canada, one of the best business schools in Canada. And I wound up doing a master's of science in business administration. I didn't want to do an MBA because an MBA is basically just basic courses. And I'd already done that. So doing a master's of science, I was able to pick and choose more directed courses because you want to basically show value added when you're talking to recruiters. And the nice thing about UBC is they also had a, an internship program, whereas Queens did not. So during the summer, I was able to get a job with the Bank of Canada. And so that sort of gave me an in when I finally graduated. It's like, well, uh, I did get interest from a lot of different places, but it's like the Bank of Canada was the easiest one. And it's like my plot even then was like two or three years finishing school, then go to Bay Street or Wall Street. Uh, yeah. So it was it was all sort of contrived. And like I I'm got this all planned out because so, yeah, I, don't, I didn't want to spend another two years in grad school and have exactly what happened to me in my undergrad, which is basically assuming I'd have multiple job offers, but nothing happened because of the, the economy. So yeah. you got to basically be aware. I'll give you a, a context here. When I graduated in 92, there were no offers. If you had waited five years when the tech boom started to happen, you were getting two or three offers out the door. So it's not necessarily how good you are. It's yeah. how lucky you are. 
that's one thing a lot of people don't appreciate is demographics. Uh, and the other thing was going on was people were saying, I don't want to work for Wall Street. I want to go work in Silicon Valley. So yeah. it really depends on the trends going on, what you want to do. And then you got to cater your education. Like, yeah, if, if they're going to still, you know, select uh, only a certain pool of people and they have to go to certain schools or they have to know somebody. That's the other thing. And the unwritten rule is like, who do you know? Um, that yeah. cropped up a lot. It's not supposed to crop up, but it crops up. So it's like, yeah. oh, yeah, I, you know, I went to school with so-and-so and he works for you there. Oh, yeah, we'll tell him and see what he thinks about you. So that that's an unwritten rule. But, it, you know, it wound up helping me because Queens and UBC were two of the schools that the Bank of Canada heavily recruited from. So uh, I got to work at the Bank of Canada. And I started off in the bond auction desk, which was basically just running the debt auctions every week. But that was kind of not what I want to do. And then a, a role came up in their foreign exchange desk. And I just went for it. I said, this is what I want to do since high school. And I made a very aggressive push and I knew all my stuff. And yeah, so I beat out a whole bunch of other people who'd been there a lot longer. And I got on that desk and it was the, the job I was born for. I mean, it, it was awesome. You basically, Love it. Uh, at the time, again, Canada had a floating exchange rate, but they, they went in every day and, and tried to manage it. So it's called a dirty float as opposed to a, a freely float. And the mm. idea was you want to, you know, just, okay, we'll get into it later. But yeah, they wanted to basically manage the volatility of the exchange rate. It's like, if it moves too much, we don't like that. And that was sort of the idea is you come in and you go buy, sell Canadian dollars versus US if the exchange rate moved too far. Um, and while I was there, we wound up going into the Asian currency crisis. And so for a long time, uh, I, yeah, I could, I could go on for hours about some of the stuff I, I saw, but the main fact is I got a lot of experience trading large amounts of money and talking to the head traders in, in Toronto. So that was a really good background for, and that basically facilitated one of those people in Toronto calling me and saying, Hey, I got a role here. Would you like to join us? Uh, so I joined TD and you know, the funny thing about investment banks is uh, it, you know, like everything, Oh, it's a team game. No, no, no. Like everyone says, Oh, you know, those banks are out to get us. What they don't realize is every little portion of a bank is a different empire. It's yeah. run by one or two guys, but everyone else is like fighting amongst themselves for resources. So I would see it even on my desk where my my boss was like taking advantage of the forward desk and they eventually found out and were furious and they basically totally bring back all the money that she'd been stealing from them. So, wow. you know, there's there's these empires within empires in the banks. And so not everyone's on the same team. So somebody may be shorting AMC and someone else may be long AMC, but you only hear about the shorters and you don't know what else is going on there. And that's like, so wow. like, example, people say, oh, RBC, you know, the, I'm concerned because I've got funds with RBC, but I see that their, their hedge fund is is long AMC puts, you know, are they screwing me? It's like, it may or may not be the case. You don't know the full story because you don't get all the information. So that, that was the most interesting thing about working for TD was it just, uh, it, it exposed, an example, another example was there was a guy at Bank of Montreal who was running an equity fund. He would getting he would go prices for his foreign exchange trades with his foreign exchange desk, and they would overcharge him. So he had a friend who was my boss, and they would wind up calling us to do their foreign exchange. Like he's calling a competing bank to do his foreign exchange because we're giving a better rate than his own bank. So that's wow. just how warped Wall Street can get. Uh, and so you got to put all that this, this stuff in context to understand some of the stuff that goes on with this, the equities is, is so convoluted that we can't even begin to imagine what kind of backroom deals are going on. Because they said, I, I was shocked that I was able to do trades with a competitor because he'd rather do with me than his own trader because he hated the guy. You know, so it's just interesting. That That's insane. 
first of all, I love the I love the context and thank you, like um for for explaining your journey, man. So and I love the market because of the complexities of the market, like you mentioned, right? And me and you have a very similar story in terms of how we got into the industry. I actually was a waiter too, so that was actually really funny. So I went to say that <laughs> and I snuck in the door. But um, so when it comes to where you are now, right? Like, like I said, I would love to start with where you just mentioned. So. As far as AMC, I got into the market. I saw the, I saw the dip. I saw the, everything that happened when it exploded. I was on the tail end of it. I missed the, I missed the money train. I was yeah. pissed off. And I'm like, man, let me go in and let me figure out this thing, right? The biggest problem for most traders from what I hear is the same problem I had, right? So I go on YouTube. I listen to Keenan. I listen to Trades Trades. There's a YouTuber that pops up every 10 seconds on there that's talking and giving financial advice. So yeah. what advice would you give to somebody like myself or somebody else in the audience to handle, how do we understand what's real and what's not and, and the misinformation that's out there? Yeah, that, that's a really, so I, I have to give some more background just to give some, so my background trading professionally was foreign exchange and bonds. So I didn't do a lot of equity trades at all. In, in my personal life, I kept my funds in fund of funds and I would basically just try and time major events like elections. And, and I was making okay returns, but nothing substantial, like six, 8% It's retirement fund. I'm not going to worry about it. I yeah. was as a stupid trader, I spooned. I'd always have a large income. So I spent a lot of money over my life and had a good time. But I didn't really have, aside from my pension investments, I didn't have a lot of investments. I had toys and I had, you know, a condo and an apartment and all that. But I didn't have, I wasn't playing around. And then I saw my bosses saying, oh, I just made 30% on ARC this quarter. I'm going, what the Ooh. hell? Yeah, like that was like Kathy's big, big move, right? So yeah. I said, okay, I got to start paying more attention to this. And I started moving some, I, I created an interactive brokers account. So I'm going to do day trading here. And, and of course, what happened was this is on the same time that GameStop blew up. And, and I, I saw it go from 40 to 72. And I made a post on LinkedIn saying, you know, this is ridiculous. I, I know gaming. I've been gaming my entire career. I don't buy my games at GameStop. I go on stream and buy it. Why would anyone go to GameStop? And I made a, I made a post about that. And oh, my God, like when I make a co totally correct call about what the bank account or Fed's going to do, I get like 2,000 views and 100 likes and 50 comments at most. When this GameStop post, I got 100,000 views. I got like 300 comments. I don't remember the likes, but it was ridiculous. And so they, you know, a lot of them were like the traditional people that say, oh, yeah, Pete, yeah, tell you, tell them this is totally bogus. And then I get the the GME guys that are saying, you're a stuffed shirt. You have no idea what's going on. Ryan Cowan's And I go, oh, okay, well, yeah, you know, but then the next week it went back to 40. And I said, ah, case closed. This thing was a, a flash in the pan, but it had gone up to 500 first, right? So those wow. guys that were commenting, it's like, you don't know nothing. It's going to go to 400 tomorrow. And it did go to 400 tomorrow. So I like thought, okay, well, they were right. There was some kind of weird squeeze going on, but it's done. And the fundamentals are reasserting themselves. But then I sort of let it go. And then three weeks later, it's like, oh, Ryan Cohen, or not Ryan Cohen, um, the fucking value, excuse the language, he doubled his <laughs> position. And I'm like, what, what is this guy doing? Like, why wouldn't he just taken his money and got out? Like, what was he doing? And then mm. GameStop blew up again. And it's like, okay, there's something deeper going on here that I need to be aware of. Because until that until that point, I've been like every other guy on, on the street. It's like, yeah, these guys are just fools. They're wasting their money. They don't know what they're doing. Uh, and so then I took a deeper dive and I wound up uh, looking at GameStop and, and AMC. And I said, you know what? There's a lot of stocks here that seem to be in this pattern. Like, again, all the ones that ripped in January and then came down. Well, I don't want to do GameStop because it's 250 bucks, but AMC is like $8. So I can play around in this. And I started day trading AMC. And then I, as a trader, I, I recognized, you know, this is very atypical behavior. This doesn't make a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. and, and so I started looking at it even more closely. And what the day that convinced me that there was absolute manipulation going on and this was a play was 
the day that that GME fell from 250 to like 125, and AMC dropped from 14 to 10 or something. And it's like, okay, this is BS beyond belief. And they wouldn't be doing this unless there was a serious underlying issue here. You don't, you don't. This is too too ridiculous manipulation to get away with. So I was, I went all in, and I was like scouring Reddit. I was scouring, uh, you know. Twitter, not not so much. It was mostly Reddit at the time, and I was picking up some YouTubers, and I was doing what you do. I'd be watching Trey's Trey's and and Matt Cores and all these guys, and I was, you know, these guys are all young. They really don't know what they're talking about, but they must be <laughs> talking about on this call because they they've been following longer than I have. So then I started to realize as time went on, you know, there was a difference in quality between some of them. Yeah. And and of course, then there was uh, the infamous ball guy from New York, uh, and I won't name him. <laughs> But, you know, it's like this guy seemed to be saying some stuff that sounded like he either had a contact or, you know, had some real experience. But then he'd be acting all crazy. So it's like, is he doing this to be vague? Like, what? anyway, I started picking up on some of the stuff and some of the stuff said, yeah, this would be explaining how they're able to do this. And the delaying orders, that sounds like that's nothing you see that you don't see that in FX. But okay, inequities with the delay that three plus three and like if a market maker is controlling the flow, yeah, I hadn't been experiencing that. And my knowledge of the DTC at the time was basically like, yeah, they just the idiots had settled all my bond trades. I don't really care about them. But now wow. it's like I got to take a little deeper look into what these guys are doing because they're facilitating naked trading. And I've never encountered that in FX before. You, you do a trade with a guy, it settles or else. Right. So I'm not familiar with this non-settling stuff. So it was an education for me. So like, don't feel bad that you like got to you know, listen to these YouTubers and and all of a sudden you're you're feeling like you're being the rug pulled under you because really no one had a real clue what was really going on. And I think it's been an education for all of us. Yeah. So the only thing I could say is for people that have been in this play for a while, you have gotten an education that you would not get through a CFA. You would not get through business school. They don't teach any of this stuff in business school. This what has happened in this market. This market has evolved dramatically in the last 20 years because of uh, IT and, and tech. The ability of what they can do electronically is high seed training. It's all a new game. And they've basically been full out displaying all the ways they can manipulate things. And this is none of this was to be known from day one. And so to be fair for the YouTubers, a lot of them were just learning on the curve as well. Um, some of them are really irresponsible in what they presented, though. So yeah. that's what I say. Like, you got to. The main thing is you got to do what you were doing and not just view one guy and say, oh, I like this guy. I trust him. You got to you gotta watch a lot of guys, even guys you think are really boring. And it's like, oh, my God, this is like watching. <laughs> there are like I, I was watching some of the silver and gold guys and some of them are really painful to watch. It's like, oh, my uh, God. Tell I, me about it. I'm Justin Maka, one, two, three. Today we're going to talk about <laughs> Oh, my God. But maybe he might say something interesting. So you got to suffer through that. So and true. If you, if you do enough of it long, you get to know – the the good and bad for all those guys and some of them as i said i uh uh i stopped watching like matt cores fairly quickly trey i would watch when i could get the time but most of his were live streams that would go six hours and sometimes yeah. go to work and leave his stream on and people were just chatting about his chair and they go oh subway cup hell subway cup <laughs> hell, okay, it's funny but you're not learning anything so yeah, it's sure. it's a it's a different presentation style. But all of them had different presentation style. And then like when I blew up, it was kind of freaky because I'd be seeing it's like uh, some of them going, "Oh, Wall Street professional exposes corruption." It's like, "Oh, that's me. Oh my God, I know what I'm <laughs> You know, it's like so a lot of the YouTubers are like unintentionally funny, but also scary, right? It's like it's like getting into a cab with a cab driver who doesn't really speak English, and you know, one twenty one West Five. No. 141.5 sign? No, no, no. You know, you're driving the wrong <laughs> way. 
that's what some of these YouTubers are like. It's like, oh my God, just like they, they got like uh, reverse repo blew up. They, they were reporting it wrong. It's like, you guys, I, the, you know, it, it, there's a lot of misinformation out there. And it, the, I said the only way to get through it is to, to, to just power through hours and hours. And, and hopefully your gut pitches on to who's talking crap and who actually is guessing and who might know something. Yeah. And it's hard. Yeah, so, that's a great point. And I, I have a yeah, saying, yeah. I, I tell everybody, Dior, do your own research, guys. It's good to listen to all the, you know, Matt Coors, Trace Trace. Like I learned a lot from those guys, Keenan, shout out to them. Yeah. But you still have to do your own research. So certain terms I would hear from them. I would yeah. go and Google it. I would go look at other sources. Absolutely. I would see who else is in the Reddits, who's who's saying what in the discords. And you're really going to have to filter out that information to figure out what's real and what's not. So I know it's a lot of time, but for what the return can be on some of these investments, it's worth it, guys. So I, I would love to, to talk about the manipulation and stuff. I was going to say, Tyrone, do you want to, I would love for you to, to say to the audience, can you break down what's so special about AMC, GameStop, and the meme stocks? Like, can you just explain that for, for everybody listening? Me up here. E either one. You want to do it? Hey, I'd like to hear your feelings. Well, to me, AMC is like, well, they call it a meme stock. I don't really like the name. I just think it's something that has a great community behind it. And I think it's just a, a community with people that came together for the same, same, you know, purpose. And I think it's bigger because whether we, as we can see, is we're trying to expose all the corruption. That's what I think. And I think, Absolutely. yeah, that's really what it is. Meme stock, I mean, AMC and GME is probably just the bigger ones that we know about, but it's a lot of stocks like this that's heavily shorted that yeah. that we feel like is going to expose a lot of corruption. Yeah, and that's another thing, Peter. Like, do you think we will ever get to that point where all of this corruption would be exposed, or like, would it be a shakeup in the in the way the uh, market is ran? Was Gary going to do something? The SEC. Well, then, you know what? And this is yeah. an education for me. So I walked into this. You know, I work for a central bank. I have the expectation that government authorities should be doing their job. Uh, what's different in the U.S. is that a lot of the Washington roles are politically influenced and politically influenced means special action committees get donations from private investors. And so there's a, an agenda that's like clear that there could be, you know, definitely like fun. Like you said, people, all the SEC's bribed, not directly, but through donations. Who knows? Right. So expectations for things that happen in Washington that I thought would be like, yeah, you want to, you know, there's a systemic risk to the market, what these guys are doing. You're letting them create like huge risk profiles that shouldn't allow to be happened, but nothing would happen. Like I, I saw the NC, NSCC and the DTCC coming out with all these rules. I said, ah, they're, they're slow on the draw. They're, they're years behind, but they're doing something. And then no margin calls. Gary yeah. Uh, <laughs> says, yeah, we're against payment for order flow. This is wrong. And it's like, nothing and it's like yeah. i i gary gensler oh i've only been in the job three weeks it's like i've only been in the job five months i've only been in the job two years it's like <laughs> you know <laughs> when are you gonna do something you don't you know so yeah. yeah i've been very disillusioned by that and the only thing i can lead it up to is there is a lot of political interference uh from senators and from you know congressmen that basically have been influenced by private sector entities and yeah you know, especially the payment for order flow issue it's like there's clear that some some politicians have spoken out about banning it and they're clearly been receiving donations from people they don't want to stop getting donations from. So in that sense, the whole political process and the market are interlinked. And that's been kind of the biggest disappointment for me is like, it takes a huge thing like 2008 for, for regulations to change. And yeah. I think what we're seeing here is exactly like basically nothing was 
there were a whole bunch of, uh, you know, as a technological in, in investments that occurred and IT's got better and the DTC doesn't need three days to settle equity trades. Everything can settle within T0, to be honest. Uh, and yet we still have this antiquated system because it benefits brokers, it benefits market makers to delay orders, and and like it's it's hideous and, and it should be stopped, but yet nothing happens. So from that extent, I think the difference now is two things: the size of like boss, sorry, AMC Bigums is big on reporting the derivative exposure of banks, and if you look at the exposure that they have now compared to what 2008, the amount of derivatives on the on the books or off off the balance sheets are huge compared to 2008. So all they've done is they've taken the problems over 2008, they kicked them down the can, and then they've added to exposure. Uh, and they've been able to do so because interest rates have been low and stable for so long. Uh, and so what's now happening is the Fed has basically said, well, we don't, if we don't hike rates, we are going to lose our entire credibility about inflation because they should have started hiking rates a year ago. And yeah. they, they didn't want to because they wanted to try and gaslight people and say, hey, there's no inflation, it's transitory, don't worry about it. But the problem is it wasn't and inflation expectations took hold. And that's bigger problem. The actual level of rates isn't a huge problem. It's when people expect more and more price increases and they build it into all their expectations for pricing. And that creates a spiral effect that gets out of control very quickly. What happened in the 70s? So the Fed realized, OK, we're going to lose all control over this unless we actually go on overkill. So they've basically raised rates aggressively. And what this means for the banks is between all the new margin requirements that have been put in to stop these people from taking these positions, which they already have, such as these huge short positions in AMC and all these other stocks. And now the interest rate hikes are going to make these positions much more expensive to hold. So right. will there be a squeeze? Are we going to get paid? We're going to get paid somehow. I don't know when and I don't know how it's going to happen. But like what's happened with the rate hikes and the margin requirements, it's not sustainable for these guys to keep dunking on the things. And what to your point, it's not just AMC, it's not Game GameStop, it's across many, many, many stocks, yeah. not just meme stocks. And it's I only I think why do they do this? You know, I, I realize to me it's like a poison pill effect. They basically have made it so toxic to unwind these shorts that they have to get a bailout. They, otherwise it would destroy the financial system. It kind of sounds like you said it's, it, it seems like you're saying so phase six, you see it actually working down the line eventually. Event, like eventually they, they cannot, they, they've been, they, they structured all this on the assumption of low and interest rates for longer. So you can take on a whole bunch of margin. Now it's like, now they, like JP Morgan a few days ago was complaining about these new margin requirements. Mm -hmm. It's like, yeah, no, no kidding. It's like, it's going to cost you money. Well, it should be because you've been loaning out too much money to people. Um, and it's like, the assumption is, yeah, we, there's all these liquidity we can access. And now liquidity, liquidity is being drained. So now you're going to be more exposed to risks. And yeah, you're going to take some losses because some of your clients are not going to be able to pay back their funds. Exactly. And we've seen, we've seen that in the crypto space. We saw that with the uh, the nickel, like JP Morgan was the hook for like billions of dollars on the nickel exchange until the LME basically changed the rules and, and you know, canceled trades. And so JP Morgan was able to use that to get out of their position. They saved $2 billion they were going to lose. But like that, that again, it's an absolute corruption. It's like, I would not trust the LME and the LME is under a bunch of lawsuits now because, you know, people that were in winning trades got their losses. Like they're basically, they had these wins canceled. It's like, you know, do you want to go to a casino when you've got a blackjack and they say, ah, oh, you didn't actually get a blackjack. Sorry. We actually won that hand. It's like, great how long analogy. Great yeah. analogy. Great analogy. 
I love, and I, I want to take a step back and to move forward because you guys are hitting some great points, right? So for anybody listening, right, for the two stocks, or specific, specifically what got me into AMC and what makes it special is that the public owns a majority of the float. So that's what it is. And what does that mean, guys? That means basically us as the eight community, we own 80% of AMC, right? And what the, the brokers are doing, they're betting on it to go down, right? Think about the pandemic. Nobody's going into the movie theaters. Nobody's buying popcorn, right? So they're thinking fundamentally about this play when people in the community said, hey, let's all grab this stock and let's hold it. And then with them short selling it or betting on it to lose, as it goes up, they're going to have to they're going to have to pay and cover those losses. Right. So that's where we are right now. We're at a point where the apes are waiting for that day to happen. And we're waiting for the government, the SEC, some of these entities to come jump in and say, hey, you're going to have to pay out eventually. But like what Peter's saying, when that day comes, it can crash the entire system essentially because there's so much manipulation going across not just amc not just gamestop but so many others and we don't know where all this liquidity is going to come from exactly and yeah i point out the the people say oh you know overstock and blah 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 all these other times nothing ever happened it's like amc is like if gamestop was public amc is way too big now it can't be ignored exactly you could you could basically in the old days there was not as much media coverage. You could short a stock to oblivion. You could put Blockbuster into seller boxing. You could basically have these stocks where you shorted it to bankruptcy and you're laughing to the bank. AMC is too public. Like people, like it, it, it forget the, the mass media that miscovers it. It's just, there's it. There's too many people that own it. Too many people ge- geographically spread out. This is not, it's not a small stock. You can, it's not even a Blockbuster or a Sears. It's too big. If it, if it goes down, if AMC were to be seller box because they, they like took the price down, it would never, you would have like people storming their congressman's like office, like, like yeah. we've been defrauded. So it, it has to be fixed. And the problem is that they, in, instead of fixing AMC, they decided to spread the problem across the market. So now it's like, yeah, now it's a liquidity issue. How, how is Aaron going to pay for all this? And uh, yeah, a guy, we was doing a voice call this morning with uh, someone else and they, they mentioned uh, this is an analogy to you're owning a house, you're behind on the payments, you keep getting the bank to, to call you for payments, and you may or may not make them. But eventually, they're, they're going to come in and basically toss you out of the house. And that's basically what it comes down here. It's like they're not making their margin, or they're making their margin calls, but they're not paying, they're not closing the positions. So eventually, they can't afford to make the margin call anymore. They're going to basically get tossed out of the position, and someone's going to close it for them. And that's basically what we're waiting for. And it may come to the point where the DOJ gets involved and it's not just closing the positions, it's people getting arrested. Uh, and of course, the DOJ has, wow. there's a short selling investigation that's been going on since at least last November. Uh, what's new is that the SE, like, sorry, the DOJ has actually said last week, you know, for the second time in a year, we're going to start focusing on white collar crime. We're not going to just find you anymore. We're actually looking for jail sentences because we recognize the incentives right now for, for actions is too easy on you yeah. guys. So, yeah. you know, so this is like a, they, they said this last November when they started this probe and then like, again, the things have continued to go off track. So they're basically saying, this is your second warning and we're serious. Uh, whether they actually give a third warning or whether they just start arresting people, I don't know. But the other thing they said two weeks ago or a week ago was we're, ex- we're looking at short selling of, you know, Microsoft and Amazon. So, if you're going to open an investigation short selling on these stocks, but you haven't commented anything on your original investigation, that means you haven't closed the original investigation because if you found nothing untoward in AMC, 
you wouldn't be opening a new investigation or expanding it. You would basically only expand if you already found problems in smaller stocks. So now you're escalating it to the bigger stocks. So this makes me very bullish that at least the DOJ is working on it and they're not stopping it. So this is... I hope so, man, because I, I have to see the cuffs. <laughs> I, have see the, I, I have to see the cuffs, man. I know. It's so frustrating. And and that's the thing I was saying a, f- a few weeks ago. I was like, I was getting really irritated by all this. And I said, look, when I got into this, it was for money. And I still want to make some coin. But mm-hmm. it, it's I put in too much time and investment. And I've been attacked too much that I need to see someone behind bars now. I don't, like, you know, in 2008, there was one guy that got arrested. And he was a little schmuck anyway. Like, I, I'm sure... This time around, they're going to go for bigger fish. Like you, and you had Michael Milken of that arrested back in the the nineties, right? Yep, so yep. You, you need to have that kind of level guy. And whether that's you know maybe Ken Griffin's got a lot of political protection. In fact, this week was interesting. He's like Ron DeSantis is the Florida governor. He basically is thinking about running for president. And yeah, Ken Griffin yeah. used the fact that like yeah, like I would be willing to be Treasury Secretary under DeSantis. So he's obviously thinking he's immune, oh. but. Yeah, there are other figures in the industry that have got similar targets on their back. So we'll have to see. Yeah. And also, which brings me to the Robin Hood stuff, right? Yeah. The Robin Hood. So can you explain what happens with that? Like, like I, obviously, so for those who don't aren't familiar, you guys saw it in the news, right? So when, when the, the stocks jumped up, I think AMC went from like what? It was like from 10 $15, about maybe 100 bucks or something like that. 72 72 was that. There's two episodes. So the original episode was GameStop went from five bucks to 494. At the Mm. same time, AMC went from like five to 20 bucks. And then Mm. they both came down. So AMC had its jump the next, in a few months later. And that was mostly an option driven thing. So there was a guy, or there's a company called Mudder Capital, who has basically done stuff with AMC before and done convertible debt issues with them. and, And people, critics of Adam Aaron say he's got too close a relationship with Mudrick. Anyway, what Mudrick was doing in June, May, June, 2021 was they were selling calls. They were basically selling AMC calls. They thought that because Wanda, who was a Chinese conglomerate, was basically looking to sell a huge portion of their shares, that AMC would not go above 14. So Wanda was, sorry, Wanda was basically looking to sell above 14. They were selling at 14. Uh, and every time they tried to sell, then people would short it and bring it down. So Mudrick was complacent, thinking, "Okay, we're going to sell calls on AMC for thirty-five bucks or whatever, and we're going to we're going to keep doing this." And what happened was Mudrick ran out, and basically, sorry, uh, Wanda went ran out of shares. They finally got cleaned out because so many people were buying AMC because the retail movement was getting bigger and bigger. Yeah. So Mudrick didn't anticipate the amount of retail people that were piling in to the market. And also they weren't keeping track of how many people were buying AMC calls. So what happened was when Wanda got cleaned out, it jumped from 14, like to 38 or something in a night. And all of a sudden, like Mudrick was scrambling and then they did a deal with Adam Aaron. It's like, okay, Adam had like 30 or 40 million AMC to go. He gave them 20 million shares and and here you go. And they got them at like 36. And then stupidly, they sold them at 39, which was like, uh, and they wrote a figure saying, oh, we don't think AMC is, is viable at these levels. And of course, this meanwhile, the, the people were still piling in and buying more and more AMC call options. So they sold the 20 million that Adam Aaron gave them too quickly. So they made three bucks on that <laughs> trade, three bucks on That's 20 million. But then their call options were underwater and AMC exploded to 72 because the next day their risk management department said, close your option position. So instead of keeping those AMC shares to hedge against their option short, they just sold the shares and they were short the, the calls and they got blown up. 
So that's why AMC went to 72. When Mudrick cleaned out, then AMC had another 20 million shares and basically gave them to Citibank and another bank. And that's when Adam Aaron, you know, basically people accuse Adam Aaron of stopping the squeeze because they all got dumped at 72 and AMC dropped down to 50. Now, the, the only issue here is like, AMC made a lot of cash doing that and it helped their balance sheet immeasurably. So Absolutely. instead of having uh, they had over a billion in cash. So like you can fault Adam Aaron for stopping the, the, the option squeeze, but you can't really fault them for doing what was right for the company. So a lot of people, including some of the YouTubers, blame Adam Aaron for like killing the squeeze. Well, he did kill the gamma squeeze from the options, but it's not clear how much Mudrick would have been caught off guard uh, otherwise, because I said Mudder could at least have been told to cover it that night before. So yeah. it's like they, they, that process was already in place going forward as that squeeze was happening. So it may not have gone to 100 anyway. Uh, we know they're not, we'll never know. We, you know, if Adam Heron dro dropped the 20 million, maybe it would have got to 135. Maybe that would have prompted more, you know, FOMO buying. We'll never yeah. know. Now, what happened in January 2021 was not AMC directly related, but what happened was so Robinhood, um, so Robinhood has basically, as a market maker, was selling people positions, and they were basically then fronting that sale to Citadel. So they were basically mm -hmm. paying for order flow. Here, this is our flow from our customer base. We're short whatever, how many AMC shares, GameStop shares, and also here's the option positions we're short. And so everyone, all the other brokers are doing the same thing. They were basically, here's our, here's our flow, Citadel. You go do this. Uh, and they would get paid for Citadel for giving them the flow. Now, Citadel was saying, okay, oh, yeah, we're in an uncomfortable position here because we're now short and this thing is going up on like op option again, gamma squeeze on, AM, on GME. So GME was getting gamma squeezed. And so it was very dangerous because when option positions are large, the leverage on that is 100 times what a share position is. So mm -hmm. all of a sudden the brokers are becoming more and more liable. And what happened was that um, the DTCC is trying to do their job and they don't do it very well, but they said, okay, hey, Robin Hood, you know, we're just seeing the positions you haven't sold the citadel yet and they're they're huge it's like you know you you get you don't have enough margin here we need to you know we're calling you for three billion extra and and like vlad apparently got this call at like four in the morning and i said oh we don't have that much but we're we're gonna but they'd already been they'd already been looking at this problem already and they've been discussing with all the other brokers before the dccs called them it's like we're going to switch off the buy button. So we're going to you know, limit the ability for these people to add to our exposure, but we're going to let only sell only so they can, they'll get panicked and they'll sell to us. So we'll cover our short position that way. That way we won't need as much collateral. So when, when the DTC said, call, we need 3 billion. It's like, oh, Vlad said, I can't do that. You know, can we get a wiggle room? And, and, and I don't know how or why, but the DTC said, okay, 1.7 billion instead of 3 billion. So they went and did a debt issue. They ran around, they begged people for money, but they also, did this close, which they didn't need to do because they'd already got the exemption from the DTC to only do 1.7 and they were able to raise that from funding. So this whole <laughs> cutting off the option or the buy button was unnecessary. And it wasn't just the Robinhood that did it. No one else was getting collateral calls because most of the other brokers were worried, but they were basically, well, well, you know, they had enough margin. So this whole thing is like Vlad saying, oh, we had to do it because the DTC it was a margin call is, is incorrect because they already got the DTC to lower the margin for them. But meanwhile, yeah, everyone that was buying GameStop, like, oh, my God, I can't buy GameStop. Oh, people are selling now because they can't buy anymore. They know the FOMO has gone. It's like, oh, my option call. I'm trying to sell it at, uh, you know, when I try and sell it, it's like the, the value is dropping dramatically. I got to get, you know, I'm trying to get yeah, out. Yeah. 
Yeah, so what it did is it basically got all the brokers off the hook. And Thomas Pettifree, who is the CEO of Interactive, he's, he's basically been on an interview telling CNBC, it's like, yeah, these, these, these option positions would have destroyed the market. So that's how bad the exposure was, that they, they knew that they were okay in like one or two days. But if it continued, they, if, if GameStop had gone to 1000 bucks, they would have probably blown up the market uh, because of the value of those call options would have just exploded. So the main thing was the, 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 the thing with GameStop would happen was that people realized that the, the gamma squeeze was, was capable of, of you know, just nuking the shorts. And so at the time, the shorts had never seen that before. They hadn't seen an organized push to buy call options. Yeah. Uh, retail, retail had been buying way more call options in the pandemic than they had been previously. Yeah. Uh, so it would have been like the Reddit crowd had sort of educated everything. And I think there were Wall Street hedge funds that were long GME that were basically educating people in, in Wall Street bets how to do this. So don't think this was just retail. This was people on Wall Street in hedge funds that were long AMC and GME and mean stock that were telling the retail guys, this is what you need to do. So like, wow. In, in a sense, it, it's not just the us versus them. There were hedge funds on both sides. And there were some hedge funds that got out at $400 because they knew what was going to happen. They had inside information that the buy button was going to be taken away. And so they knew to take profit early, whereas the retail had no such information. So the retail got left holding the bag. And uh, the institution hedge funds that were long got out and made a crap load of money. So that's what happened with 2021 wow. January. Um, but it was it was a contrived plot. And it was... a it was basically collusion among the brokers and it is illegal. And that's why we, we had the, the hearings, the congressional hearings, and they should have come up with a more resolute stand. And that's the biggest disappointment. Again, it's like, you know, is, is Congress capable of smacking these people the way they should have been smacked? Because I don't, I won't say for certain if Ken Griffin lied, but I can tell you Robin had lied. And for that's sure. why there are still, there are lawsuits against Robin Hood for that very reason. Yeah. And well, what I, what I, Aside from the manipulation, what I hated about it is what it did to the trust and the credibility of the market to the retail investors who were new like myself. Exactly. So, so that that was the more so. It was like, man, I'm right in the market now, but now we're, we're actually winning. So that's like back to your analogy with the blackjack. Now yeah. I've got you. I've got 20. I've got 21. I, I doubled down. I've got yeah. my money and I can't play another hand. I can't do anything else with it. Right. Or you're telling me you're going to give me a fraction of what I've won. Exactly. And and that's that's really the, what the real problem is. And then back to your other other issue now. So now you bring it up to these congressional people and then this political donations, there's alliances, there's allegiances, things that have to, you know, everybody's, you know, I've, I've got I got to keep my role. Right. Yeah. And we're all we're all all those things. There's things like dark pools. Right. I would love for you guys to, to, to touch on that, too. Right. So oh, I just okay. learned about dark pools. And for those listening, it's basically a closed market for the elite. That's the best way I can put it unscripted <laughs> the, the, yeah the, the idea with dark pools is that okay we got a, a fund that wants to do a large trade but if they do it publicly people will front run them so we don't want to be front run by everyone else so we want to have it privately and discreetly done and it's like all the banks say oh you know we can create these exchanges that are like members only it's like you have to be accredited to use it and you know our biggest clients will qualify blah 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 and so, yeah, we'll, we'll, you can do your big trade here and we'll find an offsetting trade uh, somehow. And then basically the, the price effect will be minimized. So you can do your, your trade discreetly and it won't influence the market price. And of course, the lawmakers say, oh, that sounds like a great idea. It's like we don't want big traders manipulating the market by doing big trades. So it's like anything that can mitigate that is, is probably good. So they're like, yeah, that sounds great. Um, the problem is that, again, like anything in the market, it gets abused. And what has happened now is like, 
instead of just select institutional clients using dark pools, what's happened is all the retail flow, the odd, what they call odd lot trades has been lumped together. And because it's all the order flow is controlled by market makers, in particular Virtue and Citadel, they package these odd lot trades into huge batches and then send them to the dark pool. So you're seeing like trading in AMC at one point last year was like 82 or 84% dark pool and only like 15% is, is visible, which means on, a, on an actual exchange. So when you think about what happens on a lit exchange, every order goes through and every trade has an impact on the momentum of that price. The, the computer algorithm at the exchange says, okay, the price is this. Oh, we just had a large trade come through to sell. Okay, the price is gonna drop. Oh, we just had a huge order for buy orders. Price is gonna go up dramatically. But what happens is if you route a lot of those orders to the dark pool where they're muted, then you can control, okay, we'll let all the big sell orders go to the lit exchange, but all the big buy orders will get shunted to the dark pool. It doesn't matter if it's it's a real dark pool participant or not. If it's a retail, large retail whale, okay, he's going to the dark pool. So you could be buying 200, you know, thousand AMC shares and it will go to the dark pool, even if you're a retail investor. And that's the problem is like the, the dark pool is being abused to suppress buys and it's it's being abused to to accentuate sells. So it's like, you know, you, you see Fidelity Day, it's like, 70 80 percent buys and in 20 percent sells and it's like oh well that you know it's like oh well the sales must be much bigger than the buys it's not necessarily the case it's just that the buys are going to dark pools and the sales are not and so as a result you get price suppression and you can see it is like why is why is ape dropped from like eight bucks to to 350 or whatever in the span of less than a month it's like it no one's selling ape like you can look at the volume there's very little like the first day of volume was 110 million, which is abnormally weird. And there's a lot of things weird that happened on the first day. But since then, the volume is steadily dropping in Ape. And it's just, but the price keeps dropping because it's like 80% dark pool. So that's exactly what is being abused. Uh, a lot of the trades that go to the dark pool shouldn't be going to the dark pool. And a lot of that's being facilitated because the market maker has discretion as to where to send those trades. Wow. That's so that's why Citadel, it's not so much that Citadel makes money off the order flow, they do, but it's more the case they can control the timing of when those trades go to the lit exchange. I'm, I'm getting more and more pissed as you talk. I'm going to be honest with you, Peter. I'm like, a, wait, hold on. Let's, let's get a more upset, um, Peter. What about the failure to deliver? Like, they oh, say, I'm saying they like in the millions. And I so I heard somebody say, I think that's where all the synthetics are hitting. What do you think about that? Yeah. So like the failure to deliver typically arises when someone sells a call option, someone exercises it, and the the, eller, the owner, the, the seller of the call option says, I need more time to locate those shares because I wasn't sure if that was going to get exercised. So it's like, okay, you have... Typically, when you when you sell a share, there's a three-day settlement, and you got to go like, oh, I already sold that share. I got to go find it again. You got to go scramble and find it. Um, but then, if you don't find it, it's a failure to deliver. Um, and with options, though, I think there's a T through plus 35 window, so you have 35 days to go find that. So they've basically been doing this is they've been, you know, selling AMC call options like crazy, like Mudrick did, and they've been like allowing them to be exercised. If they get exercised, like you said, usually it's like they don't get exercised as a free premium for the seller. If they do get exercised, like, oh, I got to go locate their shares. And you would think in a normal market, hey, you know, AMC closed at, at 10 today. That means that all these call options that are in the money are going to exercise. That means there's a huge amount of AMC buying interest that should occur next week because it's T plus two, whatever. And what happens on the Tuesday is nothing happens. It's like, well, there should have been a huge amount of buying interest. Well, they just went to fail to deliver. Okay, well, now they're failed to deliver. When are they going to get bought? Oh, they have T plus 35 days. It's like, 
why on the earth do they have so much time? But so you get these failed to delivers and then everyone gets excited. Oh, the SEC is going to publish the failed delivers for this month. And I think uh, in, in August or something, there was a day where there were 10 million AMC failed delivers. It's like, really? 10 million shares. Like in typically it's less than 50,000. So we did have like a day, you know, a few weeks later where there was a big AMC run up. But more or less, these, these failed delivers get hidden because then instead of actually on the T plus 35, purchasing the shares they do some sort of swap with someone it's like okay we're gonna you know give give me an extra 90 days to fill this i'm going to do a swap and it's an off off balance sheet it's a it's an over-the-counter swap between two counterparts no one else knows about it and all of a sudden this magic pressure to buy the mc shares disappears for another 90 days and or 180 days or 365 days depending on the term of the swap so that's how it basically an option position gets created in the option market and then gets swapped to eternity and so why this phase six that people are talking about that happened in September is like for, for before, if you're doing these off the counter swaps, no one knew about the details. I mean, now phase six, it becomes like there's a third party evaluating the, the risk. And is there enough credit assigned to these swaps? So all these swaps that have been done to hide these, these fill the delivers are now going to be monitored by someone eventually when they come, like they have to be reported and it may not be that they don't get reported till about the time they're due. I don't, hopefully it comes before that, but I, I'm sure they're finding ways of delaying paperwork. So a lot of this, this stuff that's been hidden, hopefully phase six will eventually come to light. And so we're hoping that like this will be one of the things that causes AMC to square is they can't keep hiding this stuff through swaps. Um, the swaps, they can keep doing the swaps, but then they have to account for the margin on which they probably haven't been doing. So it's like, okay, you've got these huge positions, you need to start covering them. So that's another issue, but that's the whole fail delivers is being abused. And you got ape. <laughs> the first day of ape, there are 40, 43 million failed delivers. <clears throat> it just, I, I feel sick to my stomach even talking about it. Oh my so, God. So, like, this is, like I said, 10 million for AMC was dramatically huge. So, 43 million ape, it's, it's like you tell me that there were no irregularities with AMC that because the, every AMC shareholder should have got an ape. There should have been a clear one for one. You know, no one should have had an ape coming late. No yeah. one should have got their ape on time. Yet there were delays all over the place. Some European brokers won't even allow you to buy it. And then there were 43 million failed delivers on the first day. With the first week of trading, ape went on the threshold list because there were too many failed delivers. So it's it's clear there's an issue with ape. And all of a sudden, all the YouTubers say, "Oh, you should sell ape." Like before the the failed deliver knowledge came out, it's like, "Yeah, you should sell ape. You should buy." Anything but ape. It's like an, all these YouTubers saying ape is the crap, and Adam Aaron's screwing you with ape. It's like no, there's a reason why they want you to sell ape because they don't have it and they need it, and that's why they're 43 million failed to deliver the second day or the first day. So it's a big problem. They have failed. The failed to delivers are basically hiding the extent of the problem, but the failed to delivers are clear evidence that that naked synthetic shorting has happened. And that's the biggest point is like the corruption mm -hmm. is visible. You could no longer gaslight us saying, oh, you guys are imagining it or no, these all get taken care of. The DTC wouldn't allow it. Oh, the DTC has allowed it and they failed miserably in policing it. So. So what I'm curious then, then what what does the community what is the community's options like? So, so like I'm a social media guy, like I told you, Peter, obviously. Right, you know, watch. Yeah. It, the sad thing is, again, we're left <laughs> with two choices. You eventually, as I said, with phase six transparency it comes to light that like these positions are massive and it's like anyone in a risk management department would be freaking out and the journals will basically pick up on this eventually whether you know the mainstream msn probably won't but like there's like 
parade on Wall, Wall Street Parade and other sites, they'll basically catch this. And eventually, there's enough people in AMC that are talking about it, like through LinkedIn and through other places, yeah. that it becomes more aware that like this is a huge corruption problem. So that's one thing. So yeah, buy and hold for one thing. And yeah, we're, we're counting on it being such a colossal mess that the DTCC, the SEC, and the DOJ have to basically take action because otherwise it's like you guys are looking like you're complicit. And it already looks like they're complicit. The DTC with yeah, the GameStop yeah. share dividend split misallocation already looks complicit. And obviously with APE, it make they look bad as well. So there's there's already pressure building. And again, there's a DOJ investigation. So I, I think the main thing is, yeah, we have to buy and hold, but like we have to be making sure that all these issues do get more broadcast. And that's like a question of how do you do that effectively? Because exactly. mainstream media is not going to do your job for you. And that's no. the thing. They're not out for us. They're, you know, they're, there's allegations. Again, like Ken Griffin has connections to Fox News. Ken Griffin has connections to Market Watch. Uh, Ken Griffin has friends at CNBC. You know, so the, it's a very difficult process to get the the word out to the right channels. Yeah, market watch that. All 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 those publications are all in cahoots, right? And that's the crazy part. Like, so what? When you like you said, like, so buy and hold, and obviously get, bring more awareness to the situation, right? Because it feels like we have so many smoking guns around the place, but just nothing can get done about it. So for anybody listening, I talk and preach this shit all day, guys. You know branding, getting yourself out there, creating community. Do you see what the Reddit and Ape community has done? We can literally flip the market on its head if the right people start asking the right questions and looking at the right information. So like this can be really, really big guys. Like, so do your own research. Don't just take it from us. But what what do you tell somebody right now, right? Beans, we only have a couple minutes left. What do you tell somebody, I know you're saying buy and hold, but if we're already getting effed over, why well, would that, they- that's the problem. It's like you, everyone has to take in account what their financial position is, how much can yeah. they risk. And a lot of people like jumped into AMC because it was following last year and they, they did it on margin and they took out a credit card loan. And then it's like, man, it's like, I, I really love the story, but I can't do this anymore. Yeah. And that's going to be like the problem. The other part of the problem is I sell the next day AMC rips. And it's like, how do you, like, how, do you <laughs> how do you live with that? And that's the problem. And that's what I've been in. It's like, I can't sell this now. The hedge funds have created a situation where I saw what GameStop did. I know what's possible. I know what they've been doing. Everyone knows what they've been doing. We can't sell now because if we sell, unless we need it to go pay the, the mortgage or the rent or baby's diapers or whatever, we're going to hold our stocks because it, it's the, the, the psychological damage of selling and then seeing it rip would would cause more harm than than anything else like I, I honestly i've been sitting here watching my amc stock i've been holding for 18 months and i'm saying i could have made so much money doing other stuff but what would have happened if it, they had ripped and i would be oh i made 20 dollars on this play but i could have made two hundred thousand on this play it, that's the that's the problem so we don't know there's no guarantee amc will yep. rip we don't know if it does rip how high it will go um it will depend on so many different factors but the fact of the matter is that the conditions are, if, if there's ever been a squeeze, this is one of the plays that will never be replicated again because they'll have to change the rules of the market dramatically to prevent it. So okay. that's the that's the ultimate problem. So yeah, yeah. but like for, for guys that are like, if you have money and you gotta be careful, the option market is obviously manipulated. And I made a lot of mistakes playing AMC options last year. I lost about half of my gains just through option premium last year. So that's, that's mm -hmm. painful. I, continually to think that like it was going to rip and I was deluded that they were manipulating the market so that it wouldn't always, it would fall to 35 and then they blew it up to 55 again. So you think, okay. And that's what they were doing that for. They kept enticing people to buy calls because they kept making those spikes happen. 
Um, so the market price is clearly able to be manipulated by the market makers. And presu presumably that was to generate option premium. Uh, so that's a big thing. If you're going to play this, be very careful about which trades you play options in. There are some things like the SPY, which is too big to be manipulated. Go for your broken play calls and puts as, as much as you want. But for something like AMC, it's too manipulated to play options. That's my personal opinion. Love it. Love it, man. Love it, man. I, I, I wish we I, I can geek about a geek out about this shit all day, man. And like and I'm going to be honest with you, too, Pete, for a finance guy. I mean, you got me on the edge of my fucking seat right now. <laughs> I'm like, yo, I'm like, do I do it? Do I take it? Do I not? What do I do, man? But everything you said was spot on. And I really appreciate you taking time to educate the audience. Um, you know, like what, what I, one of our big goals, right, especially for our community, we want to make sure that people are educated, that they know what to look out for, not to get screwed over. Um, how can we use our voice to create change? And having conversations like this is, is is one step towards that. So I appreciate you, man. You don't know us from a hole in a wall. You came in, you had a great conversation with us and I just really appreciate you, man. And I would love to extend an invite any other time. So if something happens, man, I would love right. to be able to call you Pete and be like, man, we're ripping baby. Are you coming Absolutely. through? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Feel free, feel free to drop me a line on LinkedIn anytime and uh, we can, you know, if nothing interesting comes up, let's have another one. So please, but, please um, do, man. Appreciate please. Appreciate you, Peter. Definitely. Guys. My pleasure. Yes, sir. So thank you, guys. You know, we have another great episode next week. So we're going to end off um, next week. We have the global social media manager, Eric Toda, of Facebook and Meta. We're going to talk about Web 3.0, the metaverse, some ways to monetize in that space. So if you guys are into that, please join. But thank you guys both. Man, it's Friday. Hope everybody has a great weekend and we're going to do it again. So we'll see you guys next week. Thanks for another great episode of More Than a Title.